Hello and welcome to Towards a VPS Society, a podcast series covering Dr. Peter Erdi and Dr. Zusha Svetelsky's new book, Repair. This book covers an ambitious array of topics, economic, physical, interpersonal, and more, and is ultimately tied together by the same questions. Why do things go wrong? When does it make sense to repair a broken object, relationship, or society? And when should things be cast aside and replaced? Over a series of four podcasts, we'll cover the main ideas of the book. Today, let's talk about why this book was written and what it hopes to achieve. Before that, here's Peter. Hi, I'm here. I'm Peter Erdi. So you are a professor of complex systems studies at Kalamazoo College, Michigan, and you are also active in your hometown, Budapest, Hungary. You worked with Zsa on the book, who is a Hungarian social psychologist and a friend. She's not here right now, but her picture is. Uh, and I also helped with the literature review for a couple of the book chapters. There were quite a few different motivations for this book, some personal, some global. Tell me about these. So when I finished my previous book about ranking, and we had actually a book lunch and looked around, and I saw some friends who were friends together, and I saw that they, are, they don't talk to each other anymore. So I experienced too many broken relationships. Uh, it's difficult uh, to deny, but even myself. And so we have this question, what we should do with, with this broken relationship uh, when we are able to repair and should and could this relationship be repaired? So this is the personal level. And of course, there was a totally different approach. Look, I'm a boomer. So I'm looking retrospective, how, how we see now this world. And we see, and uh, many people will agree that something went wrong in the world, whether or not we boomers are the reasons that we destroyed this world, but I don't totally agree. But I cannot deny that we have, we see this food waste and hunger. We have this fast uh, closing for the rich manufactured in condition close to slavery in other parts of the world. It's, we have climate crisis, social inequality, uh, maybe more frequently than earlier, maybe just communication, we see a lot of natural and social disasters. Uh, I started to think on the book before the emergence of the COVID-19, and I'm speaking about the war that we have uh, in Ukraine. And so we started to, with chat with Zsuzsa, and I was thinking whether or not repair is a good uh, topic, and Zsuzsa is a social psychologist, told me yes, and I uh, offered her uh, to be a co-worker, and I believe it worked well. Uh, it's also very important that we are Hungarian. I live more or less uh, for 20 years in the US, but still send, spend each year several months in Budapest. But we, we grew up in a poor country. And uh, I was a child in the 50s. That was very poor, behind the Iron Curtain, if you know this concept. So we learned about the repair culture. That was the social norm. And... Yeah, so by social uh, norm of repair culture, I guess that meant that when things broke, you would fix them uh, because you didn't really have a choice otherwise. So Yes. Uh, 
I'm glad we got to hear more about that. Um, and it felt that you definitely did cover all of those things when you were writing the book. You wrote about personal connections and the problems in the world. And um, you kind of scattered throughout there a few of your own anecdotes and stories about what it was like to live in this repair culture. Um, but the book also feels to be tied together by something more general, that is repair as a general resource management strategy. Can you tell me more about that? Look, so we, we, we discussed that our repair process is everywhere. And then somehow we had an aha moment. Look, people have so many resources, very different types of resources. Everybody has her, his phone, cell phone and laptops. And, but of course there are also uh, people, family members, close and more distant individuals. And we need different type of, of, of friends and, and acquaintance, colleagues and communities. And of course we are also part of a country and a continent. So we have global resources, which belongs to everybody. It's very important now, air and, and pure water and ocean waters. So now we have a general question. What will we do if the resources are impaired? So at a certain point when we try to arrange uh, in our own mind, uh, what type of resources we have, we had an aha momentum, realized the central core of the book should emphasize that repair is a general resource management strategy. And it's also good if you don't throw out things, but try to repair, you have a positive attitude to the objects and subjects. Uh, and it also, when you try to repair something, you have a happier life. And hmm. Yeah, I see what you're talking about there. Um, and as a student of economics, I have learned about resource management strategies, which are more about how you allocate resources rather than retrieving resources from depletion. So I think it's an interesting old but new way of thinking about things. Um, so let's see if we can go more into some of the topics you talk about. Uh, over the rest of this podcast, we'll be going over planned obsolescence, which is a topic people are somewhat familiar with already, and also resilience, um, and how what you mean by the rise of the throwaway society. So yeah, let's start with that first one, planned obsolescence. What does that mean? How, what meaning do you give to it? And maybe if you can give some examples as well. So now, if a product is old-fashioned or looks old-fashioned or doesn't work well after a certain period, you, yes, consumers can't do anything else just to seek some new items. And so one example for the planned obsolescence uh, was famously related uh, to the light bulbs and it's famously called the light bulb conspiracy. The goal of the bulb industrialist was a systematic, and you will not believe if you don't know the story, systematic reduction in the capacity of the light bulbs from 2000 hours to 1000 hours. So they, they, they hired researchers and whose goal was to find physical chemical conditions 
to reliably reduce the lifespan of the bulbs, but it should be reliable for around 1,000 uh, hours. And there was a global carter and all these big company uh, from the GE to the Tokyo Electricity and Europe, the famous German uh, company Osram, Philips in Netherlands, Company de Lamp in France, uh, the Hungarian Stongsram, the Britain's Associate Electrical Industries. They planned to have it for 40 years, but they couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy that they got away with this plan and were able to coordinate all about the world. I guess their profits really drove them there. Um, and I think <coughs> the thing about planned obsolescence is not just a matter of reducing the lifespan of something, but also a cultural change, which is sort of mentioned, where if a object seems old fashioned, then the consumer is going to want to buy the new item. Um, and I think we see that a lot with some of the trendier items uh, today, like iPhones or something, um, where your old model is, you know, pretty functional, but yeah, you want to keep up with the times, I guess. Uh, so yeah, you were talking about this as a, a herald for the throwaway society where maybe uh, you started with something like planned obsolescence and then the patterns started to emerge uh, in other industries and in other ways. So what do you mean by this throwaway society? So we live in this throwaway society. Uh, the expression appeared in the Life magazine in 1955 in the United States. And now it is more or less uh, general. I have, prob I have had in the last 30 years about 10 notebooks, laptops. Many of them were unrepairable. We, everybody has now a couple of smartphones, which is unrepairable. And this is a symptom of the throwaway society in which we live. And I'm somewhat surprising. That is a business model. And the business model says, if the batteries cannot be replaced, you will buy a totally new device. And we used batteries, lamps in the 50s. It was unimaginable. And somehow we consumers accepted this business model. We have also uh, this phenomenon food waste, while, while the other part of the world is just have this hunger. We have this fast fashion. So, uh, roughly speaking, we live with the blessing and curse of the throwaway society. And in the beginning, the benefit seems to exceed the cost. And if we speak about the broadly defined middle class, it enjoys the fruits of consumerism. Then look later, it turns out that there are only first just small collateral damages, food and clothing waste, and then it becomes more and more serious problem. And now this is the predominant feature of our society. It's difficult to change the self-driving mechanisms of global capitalism. More and more voices show that the smooth continuation of the present trajectory may lead to ecological, economic, political, and social crisis. Therefore, the throwaway society should make fast and responsible decisions to transition what I, I, I like to call as, as a repair society. 
Yeah, so I agree that we do have some pretty serious downsides to this throwaway society. Um, although I do think that some benefits will continue to go on, even if they're not worth it. So maybe one is uh, just faster innovation, because maybe if you're stuck with an old model that you can repair, you're less likely to be able to make revolutionary new changes to a product. Um, but yeah, as, as time goes on, a transition seems to be important. Um, so yeah, you talk about it's being a good and responsible thing to move to a repair society, but why is a repair society important other than um, reducing all of these downsides of a throwaway society? What else does it give us? You talk in the book about resilience. What's this concept about? It's a difficult, difficult topic, Jojo, since uh, resilience became a buzzword and uh, originally derived from ecology. Next year will be 50 years old, goes back to Holling, a famous ecologist. But now it's a generally used expression uh, uh, as the ability of people building cities, small communities, large communities. There are books about the uh, resilience of the whole world and this ability to rebound. Uh, after uh, impairment. So when we may expect, when we may expect that disturbances can be tamed or maybe uh, can be replaced to the original state. And there are situations when we realize, oh gosh, no, it, 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 it disappeared. We should accept that we cannot uh, go back to the old world. And there are new norms and new normals. Right. So when there's disturbance, you sort of expect two outcomes. Either you recover from the disturbance back to your old normal, and that's what you call resilience, or you realize that you can't recover and you transition to a new normal. So rough, uh, roughly speaking, uh, small perturbations uh, is transient, and then the original state can be uh, established. This, this comes basically from, uh, uh, from our knowledge in natural sciences, in physical chemistry, when we see if, you, if a ball is in the volley and you uh, kick the ball from the, its ground seat to the volley, it, 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 it uh, goes back soon to the original state. However, if you adopt a huge kick and it goes out, then you, you don't have the idea what will happen later. It will be something, it, it goes to a new situation. It will be a new normal, which cannot be predicted. And uh, this is very important for us, whether or not we are able uh, to predict the futures. That was very important in, uh, in science and just I mentioned that Newton's law was fantastic. It was possible uh, to predict the motions of celestial bodies. Now we have this question, can we use these prediction methods, of course, in a very generalized way uh, to see uh, how the world will develop. And we should also see uh, the scope and limits of predictability. I see. Right, so I guess 
when you're talking about a huge kick, uh, you probably want to make sure that when you go to wherever you go after the huge kick, it's not a massive collapse of the system or object or community you're interested in. That is, you want to avoid uh, existential or catastrophic risks. Um, and instead, you want to transition to a better normal. So you talk about maybe an example of a better new normal. First of all, Jojo, I remember when we when you made a literature review, uh, you explained me clearly uh, that there is a difference between existential and catastrophic risk. Uh, I don't believe we, we go uh, to discuss now these issues. And what I would mention now as, a, as something important, which uh, and, and the movement is, is increasing, a new business model, uh, of the circular economy, dramatically, which might dramatically reduce the waste. So historically, we have a linear economic model. You have the crude materials, there is a process, there is a product, and, and the waste material just goes to the environment, water, air, who cares? Now there is a, uh, now people are thinking now how, how to utilize the waste uh, material and and there are huge conferences and, and books about circular economy. I'm very optimistic that there is a, a new technological model and mit, which might help uh, dramatically reducing uh, waste stuff. And so I also hope, and actually we should learn how to live a resilient life and uh, how to design resilient technological and social systems. So roughly speaking, I do believe we need uh, technological development and good morale, or may, maybe I reverse first, good morale and technological development. And, uh, but I believe uh, development somehow is a must. There is a famous slogan which came from the Seattle industry, the show must go on. So whatever happens, we should be able to, uh, we should function. We, we have losses, we have problems, still uh, the show must go on. And I think this is a very important message from me as a, as a boomer to the, to the Generation Z. Yeah, I see. So yeah, wrapping up now, um, We'll finish around here, but in the next episodes, we will talk about what we often look find ourselves looking back on and wishing for a golden age of the past. Which, after looking into a couple of uh, thought of civilizations that were golden ages, turned out maybe this never existed. Um, and then coming off the back of that, we ask, why do things feel like they're going wrong, and why do things actually go wrong? And we look at the level of objects, people, and society, and see why things go wrong in all of those different areas. So yeah, thank you listeners for your time. Uh, and thank you for talking about this much of your book. Thank you, Joshua. We will, we will continue the podcast. Thank you.